It's Monday, August 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Lots of political news this month as the modified conventions will take place, and Joe Biden will announce who his pick will be for his running mate. Biden has already committed to picking a woman as his vice president, but there has been increased pressure to pick a woman of color. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for who is on the shortlist. Next, the summer of 2020 will be full of booming home sales and unfortunately, eviction. The lowest mortgage rates in history are allowing people to take advantage and buy bigger homes. But on the flip side, renters are facing job losses and evictions. Heather Long, economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for what else is driving home sales during the pandemic. Finally, there is no COVID baby boom that some suspected there might be. In fact, Americans aren't making babies, and that could be bad for the long-term economy. Some estimates say there could be 300 to 500,000 fewer babies born next year, which leads to fewer consumers, workers, and taxpayers. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, joins us for the American Baby Bust. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Wall Street didn't build this country. You built this country. You built the middle class. So I'm incredibly grateful, and I mean it sincerely. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. There's going to be some big political news this week. Former Vice President Joe Biden is going to be announcing the name of the woman who he is going to pick for his vice presidential pick. There's a lot of politics, a lot of stuff going into this. He had already previously announced that he was going to pick a woman. It's increasingly looking like he might pick a woman of color, but there's a lot of choices and a lot that goes into this, really. You know, it's an important pick. A lot of people say, well, it doesn't really matter who the vice presidential pick, but there's just so much time and effort that goes into vetting these people. So, Ginger, tell us how important this pick will be, and then let's go through some of the names that are on the short list. There's no doubt that as a former vice president himself, Joe Biden has spent a lot of time thinking about and weighing who this person will be and considering the relationship and the dynamic that he will have with this person. We know that when Joe Biden was being considered as Barack Obama's running mate, the one request he had was that President Obama have lunch with him once a week for the duration of the time they were in office. He wanted to make sure that he had a place, that he had the president's ear, that they were discussing things, and that he had a role. And you know that he's also going to be thinking about his running mate in that vein. We also know that in elections, vice presidential selections often provide candidates with a bump. They see their numbers go up in the polls. And while Joe Biden is doing very well right now, and we haven't seen the sort of normal ebbs and flows of polls because no one's out campaigning like normal, it is important, too, to consider who he could win over. As you said, he has said he's going to select a woman. There's been quite a few people trying to get him to select a woman of color, hoping that he could help boost enthusiasm among minority voters. Voters, many uh, in that population, we saw lower turnout in 2016. So there's a lot at play here and a lot of intrigue, especially given the fact that he told us so long ago that he would be picking a woman. So we've had a long time to look <laughs> at the people and consider who it might be. Right. Senator Kamala Harris is at the top of a lot of lists of people you know, saying that he's obviously considering her. But you go back to one of the first debates where she called him out on racial issues and it got kind of testy at one point. It seems like they've kind of made up after that, but 
still, she is one of the contenders. She is. And we understand her name is high on the list. She was friends with the vice president's son, Beau Biden, who died from cancer a few years ago. They knew each other when they were both attorney generals in different states. So they have gone back farther. They've known each other for quite some time, Biden and Harris. And she is seen as someone who could boost some popularity, especially among women, although President Trump does terribly among women. So it's hard to imagine how many more could be won over. And it does seem that they've put behind them that sort of disagreement, as well as the fact that her willingness to call him out on racial issues is seen potentially as a positive, that if he weren't doing what African-American voters thought was best, she would be willing to say to him that she thought he should be doing something different. Joe Biden's going to look for somebody that he can work well with. And a lot of people have said that former national security advisor and U.N. ambassador Susan Rice figures high on that list because she has that uh, national security background, that foreign uh, policy background that Joe Biden kind of also had. And they've known each other for so long already. Susan Rex would be a bit of an unconventional pick, picking someone who hasn't run for office before, that's never held an elected office, that has worked in the White House and that has a background that bolsters the background that the candidate has. Joe Biden has served atop the House, the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee for a long time. He's got a lot of foreign affairs credentials from his time in the Senate. So it would be sort of bolstering a skill he already has. But as he said, he's picking a woman. We've heard from sources close to the vice president's campaign that she really has been vetted, that this is under serious consideration and that they are giving her a lot of thought. And this would be potentially to get away from some of the criticisms that the Democrats are all politicians, that this is a candidate who held elected office for over 40 years when you combine his time in the Senate and as vice president. So this would definitely be an unconventional pick. It would be different. It would face some criticism that if something were to happen to Biden in short order, would she be prepared to take over? That would raise some questions considering she's never had elected office before. But I think her time in the White House would probably satisfy some of those concerns. Who else is one of the top contenders? Senator Tammy Duckworth, who is an Iraq war veteran who lost both of her legs in a helicopter crash as one of the first women to fly uh, combat helicopter flights. Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin is another Senator Elizabeth Warren who ran against Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. There are some governors that names have come up. Whitmer of Michigan is one, although we don't believe she was being vetted. Governor Grisham Lujan in New Mexico, who also served in Congress before, would be a surprising pick, but one whose name has occasionally come up. Lots of secrecy goes into this process. And so there have been names that have been leaked. There have been names that have been hinted at. There are names that people who have leaked their own names. The vetting process is quite invasive. So most of them would probably know if they're under consideration. But if we think back to 2012, Mitt Romney picked Paul Ryan and they were able to keep that largely under wraps through the whole vetting process. You think back to John McCain picking Sarah Palin as a running mate. That was a total surprise to most people. So this process has been known to throw some curveballs, even when we all think we know the names that are under consideration. Ginger Gibson. Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. There's obviously a need to support workers, support the economy. People who, through no fault of their own, are shut down because of this terrible disease. Joining us now is Heather Long 
economics correspondent at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Good to be here. The coronavirus pandemic is having an interesting effect on the housing market. 2020 is going to be the summer of booming home sales and unfortunately, a lot of evictions for renters. We're seeing the cheapest mortgage rates in history right now. People are buying bigger homes, but renters are facing more job losses. And as I said, fearing this eviction, the housing market is just insane right now. Heather, tell us some more about this, please. It's this mix where pretty much anyone who has savings right now in the bank is taking a look at real estate. I guess a lot of people are sitting at home bored and they're checking out Zillow and Redfin and all those sites and they're fantasizing about what their dream home is, maybe a bigger backyard, a few more bedrooms, or a study where they can work from home. And people are out and they're looking and they're buying and they're realizing they can afford a bigger home right now because interest rates, mortgage rates, actually fell below 3% for the first time ever this month. So this is making it way cheaper. You can afford more and bigger homes. But the flip side of that is basically while we're having bargain hunting by a lot of affluent people who kept their jobs, on the flip side, a lot of renters are the ones who are, you know, obviously lower income. And those people have been hit the hardest during this pandemic by a lot of job losses in the restaurants and the retail sectors. Rents are not going down yet. Rent payments have not been cut. And at the same time, these people are getting phone calls like, why can't you pay your rent? I'm going to take you to eviction court. The demand for homes are really strong right now. So the prices are up. And as you mentioned, there's a few things that are driving this surge right now, the cheapest mortgage rates that we've seen in a long time. Millennials are hitting their 30s and want to start getting into their first time home buying. And then people that want more space, bigger properties, obviously, at a less expensive price, too. The biggest surge in age group right now is basically people who are 30 and 31. The median, the typical age for buying your first home is 33 or 34. So basically what's happening is suddenly a lot of Americans, younger Americans, they're turning 30 and they're having that moment of, hey, I'm ready to settle down. And of course, on top of all that, you have baby boomers who are retiring and maybe they had a big house when they are bigger house when they were raising all their kids. Now their kids are, are out of the house. They're looking to downsize. And so you put all that on top of the pandemic effect where so many people are working from home and wanting a bigger or a nicer home or a different type of home. And you know, I have an example in my story from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, you know, not normally one of the places that people are jumping to buy a home there. And I knew something was off. I grew up in that area when I was talking <laughs> to realtors and they were telling me um, a $200,000 home was getting 26 bids in a matter of days, and people were willing to pay $50,000 above asking price. I mean, again, you expect to see a little bit of a hot market right now, but I'm hearing those kind of stories. People tell me it's the same thing in the Poconos in Pennsylvania or in upstate New York. I called some realtors in the Los Angeles area. They say, you know, an hour outside of Los Angeles, you see some of the same things. People want to be further from the city. They see something that looks more affordable and they are pouncing. On the flip side, renters are seeing a lot of tough times. A lot of the lifelines that they had going through the pandemic are starting to run out. There was kind of a ban on evicting people. I think that ran out. Obviously, we're going through this thing right now on to see whether 
enhanced unemployment benefits are going to be extended, but that could be something that a lot of people lose. So for renters, it's a very tough situation. In my story, I profile a woman who's in Florida who used to be a hotel housekeeper at a Hampton Inn. She was worried about paying her June rent. She was able to get some money from churches in Florida, basically gave her money. She has $700 for her apartment that she shares with her daughter and grandchild. And um, now they don't have July rent. She calls every day the hotel to see if they'll take her back. They have it. They don't have enough people. Obviously, Florida's had a surge in the virus cases. They're not having the tourists they used to have. And she's tried to apply to Taco Bell, she told me. She's applied to Walmart, to numerous different stores. And the problem is that the hiring is not back. The jobs are not there. And so the reality is what really shocked me, the census, the U.S. Census has been doing a weekly survey. And their latest weekly survey in mid-July shows that over 12 million Americans were unable to pay June rent. And about 10 million don't think they'll be able to pay August rent. And that's already. So this is a real crisis. Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Slightly over 60% of weddings that were scheduled for 2020 been postponed until either later this year or 2021. I talked to a company called The Pill Club, which uh, founded a 65% increase as of last month in new patient requests for uh, Anovera, which is a vaginal ring that prevents pregnancy for up to a year. Joining us now is Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me on. One of the side effects of the pandemic, when this all started right away, everybody says, oh man, there's going to probably be, be a bunch of COVID babies, pandemic mm-hmm. babies, whatever yeah. you want to call it. That was kind of the thought line at the beginning, but we're kind of seeing some early indicators that that might not play out. Some estimates say that there could be as much as 300 to 500,000 fewer babies born next year. Tell us a little bit about this, Peter. It turns out that people who are going through a pandemic and a deep recession just aren't in the mood for having a lot of babies. just doesn't seem like the right thing to be doing. Right. You may be worried about whether you get a paycheck You may be worried about being in hospitals at a time when there are going to be patients with COVID there. So, yeah, I mean, it's completely logical if you think about it, that the birth rate would fall. That number from Brookings, 300 to 500,000 fewer, is is roughly a 10 percent decline from the normal number of births that would have been expected for next year. And, you know, one of the things my article gets into is some of the other evidence for that, but also, like, what happens next? For example, If it were just a slight postponement where the births would be made up for after things get better, then it wouldn't really be very meaningful. It'd just be a little notch. But if they don't get made up for, then we're going to have a long-lasting hole in the population that COVID put in there. Yeah, and that's one of the difficulties. There seems to be a lack of time to recover and, uh, you know, these recoveries, everybody says, Oh, well, everybody will bounce back. They don't always bounce back the same way. Well, exactly. Think about it. If you're a woman who's uh, 38 years old and you realize the clock is ticking, you were ready to have a baby. And now there's going to be at least a year when you won't, you may still try afterward, but you may run out of luck. Uh, If you're a younger woman, if you're 30 or something and you haven't started having children, you 
sort of had in mind you were going to have three maybe. You may not squeeze in three. You may only have two now. Yeah. That's the evidence. This is not just me talking as a man. I'm, you know, uh, <laughs> one step removed from this. But yeah, that's what the evidence shows. Peter, tell us some of the early indicators that we're seeing, because there was a bunch of different things in here. The weddings were slowing down, people getting birth right. control and stacking that up was going up as well. Yeah, like the wedding reports, a company I talked to said that surveys show slightly over 60% of weddings that were scheduled for 2020 been postponed until either later this year or 2021. I talked to a company called the Pill Club, which uh, founded... A 65% increase as of last month in new patient requests for uh, Anovera, which is a vaginal ring that prevents pregnancy for up to a year, so long-lasting birth control. Actually, even talked to a woman from Planned Parenthood who said she's getting more women coming to her who had pregnancies that they wanted to terminate. So it's pretty darn serious. And the results of all of this, obviously less babies, babies are cute, all that stuff. But you have to think of the long-term effects of it. Fewer children means fewer consumers in the future, fewer workers, less taxpayers, and then the effect on our older Americans. You know, uh, Social Security gets thrown out of the whack when people aren't contributing. So it's kind of this big old thing that's all tied together. And, uh, you know, I like the way you put it in the article, too. The flip side of it, people say, well could be bad on that front, but it could also be good for the planet because there's less mm-hmm. people causing pollution. Exactly. For example, there was a study out of Sweden a few years ago. Uh, it was published in Environmental Research Letters. They found that if you're thinking about how to save the planet, you know, you could decide you're not going to fly. You're going to get an electric car, seal your windows so they don't leak heat in the winter. But the single best thing you can do to save the planet is to have fewer children. Because children consume resources. (laughs) Right, exactly. The numbers are what they are now. The early predictors, we're starting to see them. The birth rate has been going down for a while. And as we said, it's tough to make up that time. And, uh, you know, know, a lot of people don't just step it up and start having a ton of babies right away. So is there any good news on the horizon with all this? The one idea that the birth rate might trend back upward is that when you survey women about how many babies they want to have, it turns out they have been having fewer than their target number. So if women start achieving what they want, then you would see the birth rate rise again. Another indicator is that when we see the total fertility rate low, it could be that what's really happening is that women in their 20s aren't having babies now, but they will have them later. There could be like a societal change where this cohort of women just prefers to delay childbirth, not to have your children. We wouldn't know that because who knows what they're going to do. But if that indeed is the case, then we would see the completed fertility rate 25 years from now being higher than the current indications. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.